suburban eastern Australia, an environment that has, over time, evolved some extraordinarily unique groups of Homo sapiens. But today, we observe a small tribe akin to a group of meerkats that gather together atop a small mound to watch, question, and discuss the current events of their city, their country, and their world at large. Let's listen keenly and observe this group fondly known as the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back, dear listener. This is episode 205 of the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast. If this is the first time you are joining us, we are producing here possibly Australia's finest podcast. (laughs) (laughs) And and possibly not. (laughs) We, uh, With our typical modesty. That's right, yes. It's a podcast where we look at news and, and current affairs and politics and the goings-on in Australia in particular and around the world more generally. And we have a particular focus on the role that religion has in our fair society. We love talking about sex, religion, politics, all the sorts of things you're not supposed to talk about at a dinner party. So my name is Trevor. I am... Well, I've got the nickname of the Iron Fist, and with me is Scott, a.k.a. the Velvet Glove. G'day, Paul. G'day, Trevor. G'day, listeners. And also Paul, a.k.a. the Twelfth Man. G'day, everybody. So we've produced some pretty good podcasts in the last few weeks. So if you're joining us for the first time, check out some of the ones in the last few weeks. There's been lots of feedback on the Facebook page and on the blog page, so we'll get to a bit of feedback as well. So you always know if it's been a good episode by you know how much sort of Comment generates, and we've had a bit. So, absolutely. So, this week, or in this episode, dear listener, we're going to be speaking to Peter Monk, who is the president of the National Secular Lobby, and we're going to find out who he is and what the National Secular Lobby is on about. And we're going to try and contact him by Skype. I've had a cold all week, so if my no, if I if my voice sounds a little bit nasally, it's, I'm just shaking off the last remnants of a cold. So, bear with me on that one. All right. Let's uh, see how we go and see if Peter is on board. So I've got on the line uh, Peter Monk, who is the president of the National Secular Lobby. Welcome aboard, Peter. Uh, Trevor, thanks very much for having me. Yeah, great. So, Peter, you're the president. You took over from Brian Morris? Uh, yeah, so Brian, um, he was really instrumental in, in the founding of the Secular Lobby. Um, he kind of put together, uh, you know, the, the, the starting team, the starting committee, um, of which I was one. And, uh, yeah, so he's uh, having to really kind of um, pull out to a large extent for, for, um, for personal reasons at this point. So, yeah, I thought I'd uh, step up and, and see if I can fill his shoes. Good on you. Very good. Um, Brian was probably the first person I ever interviewed for the podcast. So we've been doing this podcast about four years now, and I think Brian was the right. first interviewee, um, <laughs> right. probably um, going back away. So uh, a good man who's done a lot for secularism in Australia. You've got um, big shoes to fill there, <laughs> Peter. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm not sure I will be able to fill them uh, adequately because really, he's, as you say, he's uh, he's he's been involved in uh, in you know, secular, um, pro-secular uh, groups for quite some time. So, yeah, he's certainly got a lot of knowledge and a lot of experience. Yeah. So what's your personal story then? How did you get into secularism and, and, and join this movement? What's your personal story? Uh, well, it, I mean, I, I, uh, I suppose it started out, I was doing a bit of um, 
technical support, really, for Brian, because uh, Brian, as you know, uh, is involved in, um, uh, in Plain Reason as well, mm-hmm. uh, which is a, an, an atheist-oriented um, group, and, and he's kind of still still doing uh, work from that perspective. Um, and, yeah, I, I basically started helping him out, uh, do his thing there. Uh, and while I was uh, around at his place uh, helping him out, we just started talking uh, about the need for, uh, you know, a stronger secular voice in Australia mm-hmm. um, and just wondering what we can do. And kind of one thing led to another, I suppose, and, and uh, we ended up uh, putting a group together and and, uh, and launching it. So, yep. yeah, it just kind of went from there. Yep. So, well, the most exciting achievement, I think, to date um, seems to be, you might disagree, but actually getting a meeting with the ABC managing director and um, the other um, head honcho there and, and being able to talk about the need for secularism uh, for secularist sort of speakers on the program seems to me probably the major achievement so far and getting a sort of a warm commitment to sort of address what's been a deficiency. Would, would you agree? Uh, well, it's it certainly is a first, yeah, as far as, uh, you know, secular groups in Australia go. Um, yeah, and certainly we were, we were um, really pleased just to have that opportunity. Um, yeah, I mean, in terms of commitment – we received, I suppose, a, a generally warm response. Um, obviously, uh, the ABC is a is a big ship, and mm. they can't uh, they can't turn on a dime. So, um, yeah, I mean, I suppose what we got in terms of commitment was basically the, um, the the chance to have, I suppose, an ongoing dialogue about what we can do, about changes that can be made. Um, and as you know, I, you've read our. Um, what we've put out about this so far, um, they were happy to take from us uh, uh, some suggestions on some additional, uh, you know, s- uh, people who could provide secular viewpoints on on issues, on, uh, you know, looking at shows such as the drama and Q&A. Mm. Um, they, they, they said that they already have, you know, basically a list of people who can provide, uh, you know, secular viewpoints, but uh, they, they said the list is probably lacking a bit. Uh, and well, then they tend we not were... to call on them, I think. Yeah, <laughs> well, like, they got a list that's covered in yeah, dust. Yeah, well, exactly. The sounds of it. <laughs> uh, possibly, yeah, yeah. I mean, as you know, that they they have um, I think about eight, uh, eight or nine um, programs uh, on TV and radio that are that are put out through their uh, religion and ethics um, stable. Probably more religion than ethics. Um, and, and yeah, certainly in, in some cases there is, yeah, there is a, a definite lack of the secular viewpoint. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's a great initiative and, uh, I sent you a link about, there was something on the, uh, Radio National Sunday Extra program last Sunday where a, a guy from Freedom for Faith was given free reign for 12 minutes to give the religious viewpoint of the upcoming Religious Discrimination Act and yeah. there was no, you know, secular voice, but... Well, I emailed them, you'll be happy to know, Peter, and just said, well, I'm on this list and here's the sort of idea that the managing director wants, you know, more secular voices and you've just had this guy on, so I look forward to getting your call. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's excellent. Yeah, that's the kind of thing we need to be doing, yeah, and, and that's certainly what we'll be doing uh, because, mm. uh, you know, we, we did we did get a, um, uh, a commitment on some level that there would be a bit of change yeah. and that's what we'll be keeping our eyes on just to now, – now that we've provided this uh, extra information to the ABC, um, we're just going to be following it up and making sure that, that there is, in fact, a, a bit more secular representation. Mm. So uh, the other thing I wanted to talk to you about was 
What sort of regular contact have you got with other groups, such as the Atheist Foundation and the Rationalists and the various humanist groups and and whatnot going around? Like, is there any structured um, means of communication happening with other groups? Are you trying to do that in any way? Yeah, that that is one of the things we're trying to do because I mean, obviously, if you compare, uh, you know, the secular side of the fence so to speak, with, with something like the Catholic Church. Uh, or, well, I suppose it's uh, – well, yeah, no, I suppose it's a fair comparison, but also, you know, I guess, the, the Christian lobby as well. Mm. I mean, it, the term organised religion really kind of gives it away, you know. It, it has its own uh, organised hierarchy there. So in terms of communicating viewpoints, communicating information, um, it's, it's all just sitting there waiting to be used. Uh, whereas there really is nothing like that on, on the secular side. Um, and, yeah, that, that's kind of what we found is one of the things we're really trying to work on is, is to get a bit more networking happening, um, a bit more, um, you know, open communication between the groups. Um, certainly what we found is that um, uh, you've got all these uh, uh, many, many groups uh, that have their own kind of slightly different view of things. Mm. So as you mentioned, you've got, you know, atheist groups and rationalist groups uh, and humanist groups and uh, uh, you know, skeptics and all sorts of things going on. They tend to kind of look at things from their own angle, uh, you know, that they have their meetings and whatever else, but there's not a lot of uh, communication going on on a, on a larger scale. Uh, and a lot of, you know, there's no real kind of sharing of, of, of information or, or kind of um, uh, sharing of effort, I guess, if you want to try and uh, effect, effect change. Or even just sharing of information and, yeah. and um, resources like, yeah. Somebody might have written a piece to do with special religious instruction in New South Wales or Queensland and somebody else is going to try and figure it out, what's the state of play, but, you know, without mm. knowing, oh, you could just contact this person because they've already written it or talked about it or they know about it. It's sort of that sort of thing where you go, oh, I, I, I want to write a piece about um, – school chaplaincy and who's the expert on that oh it's this guy over here yeah. and uh it's that sort of cross-fertilizing of information that's really what's needed so have you, is there any particular plan to do that or you just is there any any particular thing that you're doing to try and join everybody up or just fingers crossed and hope they do <laughs> Sorry to put you on the spot if the answer is no, but hey, <laughs> rain wasn't built in a day. <laughs> uh, no, there there is actually a plan. Um, so we're working on it, I suppose, on a couple of levels. One is, uh, as you know, we have obviously our ambassadors, uh, many of whom are involved in particular areas. Uh, you know, education, for example. Um, uh, David Zingier, Luke Becker's constitutional law. So we've got a lot of people mm. who kind of know about particular secular issues. Um, on top of that, we've also got um, uh, people who I suppose we refer to as secular consultants. Mm -hmm. So they're people, they're people who aren't ambassadors but who are uh, experts or who have a lot of knowledge in certain areas of, uh, of policy that we're interested in. Uh, and we, you know, have kind of open lines of communication with them uh, just to say, you know, if, if we're, you know, uh, launching a campaign on this particular issue, can we come and ask you these questions and get mm -hmm. your advice and, and, you know, learn more about it? Um, and then as well, also, yeah, yeah. I mean, basically there is – we really need a <laughs> – we need a staff of people just, mm -hmm. just to kind of keep track of all the organisations and what they look at because uh, you know, there are lots of organisations um, – 
who, you know, even, even kind of on a local community level almost, who have taken up particular issues that they're concerned about and, uh, and, they, and they talk about it with each other, but there's not a lot of communication outside that group. Uh, and, and those, there's a lot of, I suppose, a lot of knowledge in that group, you know, that we don't have necessarily. Uh, and these are people who've been kind of looking at this one issue uh, for, for years perhaps and who, are, who really know it really well. Um, so what we'd like to do is kind of tap into that knowledge, uh, you know, Australia-wide in all uh, in all the different areas of policy that we're interested in. And obviously that's, um, I mean, to, to kind of work that into a, a well-functioning network is a huge effort. Yeah. Uh, and we're only, yeah, we're kind of scratching the surface. At this point. I know. If you can, I reckon if you can organise some face-to-face meetings, if people can actually meet face-to-face, it makes it's so much easier when three months later you want to talk to that person or make contact or something like that. Um, yeah, that's some sort of weekend event. It doesn't have to be a big formal conference. It can just be a pub crawl, but where everybody gathers <laughs> in Melbourne one weekend and gets to just mingle and chat without – it doesn't have to be that formal, but just where you've got face-to-face because, um, you know, I'd like to meet you face-to-face and people like Luke Beck and – I've never met Brian, I've uh, n- never met Meredith Doig or like all these people, if we actually got into a room and just um, talked face-to-face, it would just make, I think, the wheels um, move a lot easier. So anyway, put that on the list of things to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, that's, that, that's certainly true. Uh, we, when we were in Sydney uh, for our meeting with the ABC, we also uh, had a press conference uh, at New South Wales Parliament uh, with um, uh, David Shoebridge from the Greens and uh, Fiona Patton from the Reason Party. Yep. Um, and that was – we had a lot of help with that from the uh, the Rationalist Society of uh, New South Wales. Um, and, and, yeah, certainly to, to have the chance to kind of meet up with, with all these people who we had uh, in some cases – um, uh, never spoken to. In some cases, we'd spoken to them kind of uh, via email uh, or on the phone. But yeah, to, to be able to meet face to face all these people who were uh, who were you know there to kind of help us out with that effort was was fantastic. Mm. To give you an example of of how little people know about each other, I interviewed uh, Sultan Harris uh, a few weeks ago. So he was the sick Har- Harris. Oh, Harris Sultan. Thank you, talking <laughs> Harris Sultan. Sorry, Harris, and. Um, I interviewed him and he was, of course, standing in the Senate for the Secular Party in Victoria. And I mentioned the National Secular Lobby and Brian Morris and his book, Sacred to Secular, and he'd never heard of any of it. And he was wow. standing for the Secular Party. <laughs> so there you go. That, I, yeah, well, that, we're <laughs> not very good at it. We're not very good at it, are we? Yeah. yeah. You know, we've got to get yeah. better organised. We've got to get... Uh, We've got to get in, in each other's throats. Yeah, and yeah. I've, I've started reaching out to a few, like there was this Facebook group I came across, Australians for Separation of Church and State, and oh, yeah. they had no idea of my podcast, didn't know who I was. Like I was asking them <laughs> stuff and they're going, who are you and why are you asking us these questions? I'm like, oh, I've been doing this podcast on your topic for the last four years, but hey, <laughs> you know, obviously you've never heard of me either. That's <laughs> It's... Yeah, that's something we've got to get uh, get over. So anyway, yes. yeah, yeah, um, yeah. so put that on the list. And um, so yes, the Religious Discrimination Act that the government is proposing, um, Peter, that's got me worried because <laughs> I cannot believe that Christian Porter said it's the top priority of the new government. Mm. You know, I, w- I wonder if his name is a hint. 
<laughs> I mean, yeah. seriously, it's, it's a strong with news. a name like that. I mean, yeah. you'd either be embracing it or you'd be changing your name, wouldn't you? Yeah, Christian by name and by nature, perhaps. Um, look, it's an interesting development because over the years, historically, the religious groups have been against um, sort of religious freedom bills that have been proposed in various state parliaments. But probably because in the past the sort of legislation that was proposed was, was legislation that was going to treat all religions equally and, and all atheists uh, with equal sort of rights. And I think on this occasion they're prepared to give it a go because they sense that, that this particular act is the one that's is going to be turned. quite favourable to them. And, um, well, the tide is turning against them. I think they can see it. They can, they can see that in the, in the community. Yeah, they're willing to give up some rights to the Muslims and the Jews yeah. as well. But, yeah, but I think because they've got, well, let's face it, they're religious schools and they're keen to protect every single privilege that the schools have got and they sense that this government's going to give them a religious discrimination act that, that they want. So and that, that You'd uh, think the last census would have uh, given them a bit of pause, wouldn't you? Well... You know, get in now while going's good. While well, we've got a friendly government yeah, so. before their um, their position is eroded further. So, Peter, are you are you as worried as us, or are we just um, pessimists? Uh, no, well, you might you might have good cause to be worried. Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly agree that I think they are seeing the writing on the wall. Basically, um, I, I remember there was a, a news article. I think it was late last year, uh, and Dan Tian was interviewed. In it, and and he said something along the lines of, you know, the Christian people are feeling, you know, squeezed out of, of public debate. They're feeling under, you know, under pressure, like they're being oppressed or something. Mm. They're losing their they're losing their public mm. voice. Um, and really, I think, I don't I don't think that it's as bad as he says it is. I think they are fear, they are seeing uh, that religion is in danger of losing this kind of level of privilege that it's always had in, in our society. Um, and, and certainly one of, one of the factors in that is the fact that every single census, the level of atheism keeps jumping up. And, and certainly we expect that to happen again in 2021, um, especially seeing as uh, we're hoping that there will be a, a change to the religious question that will uh, help gather more accurate data on that, yes. which, we're, yeah, which we're expecting to, to make the figure uh, increase. Yeah. yeah, so submissions have closed on that and um, the census people are sort of putting a proposal to the government as to what they think the question should be? Is that, is that where yes. we're at? Yes. So there was, yeah, there was a period of public submission uh, and the, uh, the ABS then puts together basically a list of things that they think should be done or things that they want to do, they give that to the government and, uh, you know, they get, they get a grievance from the government. Mm, yep, yep. So on the uh, National Secular Lobby website, you've got a list of, a wish list of, of changes that would happen to improve mm. the state of secularism in Australia. Is If we could pick one out of there, is there a favourite for you that particularly resonates with you? Uh, well, yeah, I, I think... Probably one of the more one of the ones that'd be nicer to solve, I think, is is the issue that came up in in a big way late last year, um, and was then you know I think this is the reason why uh, kind of from December till mm, about a month ago um, Scott Morrison didn't really say much about 
religion and religious freedom and that kind of thing. And then all of a sudden it popped its head up again. And that was the uh, religious schools being able to, uh, you know, expel uh, gay students and fire gay staff, basically. Mm. Um, and, and you probably remember that when back uh, kind of late last year, when bits of the Ruddock Review were first leaked um, and, and then, you know, it came out that, yes, we want to, you know, enshrine these laws to enable religious schools to discriminate in this way. Um, and uh, and there was a you know the public said what and the, and Scott Morrison said oh well, they, well these, these are existing laws schools can already do this mm. and you know half half of Australia apparently wasn't aware that this was the case mm. and when we saw a, quite a big um, a big reaction to that yeah uh, and of course there was some kind of vague um, uh, bipartisan agreement that yes they should they should change the law so that schools can't kick kids out yes um certainly in relation uh, to enrollment of gay students they were prepared to give up on that one pretty easily Mm -hmm. but it never nothing was ever put before parliament yeah no no yes it's yeah it's kind of uh, was put on the back burner and 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 forgotten about i think um and hopefully that will be taken up again uh, very soon but yeah still we have the issue of, of of staff teachers and staff um, you know, who, who can still uh, – basically will have to – even if it, even if the school is apparently okay with it and, and, you know, the school may have given assurances that, no, 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 every, everything will be fine, they're still basically going to work every day with, you know, the sword over their head just wondering what's going to happen and is it going to fall? You know, it's, it's not a um, – it's not a way that people should be forced to, to live their lives. I agree. The, the Israel Falau case is interesting in this regard because Erica Betts and characters like him have come out and said very strongly that, that your religious belief um, shouldn't affect your employment and, you know, almost demanding an inquiry into the whole affair. Yet they don't see the irony. <laughs> they don't see the irony. Yeah. Where yeah. their religious schools are affecting the employment of teachers based mm-hmm. on religious belief. They, they, they just don't get it. They, they're so <laughs> selfish-minded that they don't see the hypocrisy yeah. of, of what they're doing, do they? No, and, it, yeah, it's, it's very odd to watch um, because, uh, you know, they, they say that they want certain rights to do things and, and you know, you're thinking, well, you realise that this will apply to all religions, not just yours. Uh, and, and yeah, it, it seems a very kind of one-sided uh, conversation as far as they're concerned. Yeah. yeah, you sort of wonder what's the point of talking to these people if they're going to hold those two opposite views in their head at the one time and not sense the conflict. You sort of just wonder how, what, how much more can I talk if you're going to <laughs> allow that to happen in your head. So anyway, we must persevere. We've got no choice. So what can people do? They can become a member of the National Secular Lobby or they can be what, – what are the options there? Or just donate like Scott does. He's good and he's one of your regular donors. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, well, yeah, we, we, we're, not, we're not a membership organisation so you can't become a member. Mm-hmm. Um, we, uh, we certainly do take donations. Um, we uh, are obviously uh, compared to a group like the Australian Christian Lobby. We're massively underfunded. Um, and we have a lot of work ahead of us. So, yeah, we'd certainly appreciate uh, if people could uh, uh, contribute something, maybe become a regular con- a contributor. Um, we do um, 
uh, we, we obviously have other ways you can get involved. Uh, we put out a fair bit of information uh, through our mailing list, through uh, Twitter and now Facebook as well, um, basically on what's going on and the kind of issues that we've been looking at lately. And there are some resources on our website where people can, you know, get involved in terms of, you know, um, writing to their members of parliaments or to uh, to the press or, or whatever. Um uh, and yeah, so basically, uh, and spreading the word too. I mean, obviously, as you mentioned, uh, a lot of people haven't heard of us yet, um, and and that's really one of the big the big battles that we face is is to to raise awareness not just of ourselves as, as an organisation, but also of the importance of these secular issues, uh, which which I think still kind of fly on the radar under the radar a fair bit. Mm. All right, Peter. Well, good on you. That's a good spiel of what you're up to. So if anything important crops up, get in touch. You've got an, we've got an open door. You're always welcome. Oh, sorry, the 12th man, he's going to grill you on something. <laughs> so, so Relax, Peter. I'm not going to grill you. And, and look, you know, um, I, I'm looking over your, your list of priorities on your website and I agree with every single one of them. And um, as uh, I'm still a member of the Secular Party, unlike – uh, Trevor and Scott, who who gave up on it, but um, look, I I have to express, and I don't want to sound hostile, but I have to express extreme disappointment at the last election when a couple of the ambassadors seemed to uh, quite publicly hitch their wagons to the Greens party. Now I know the Greens are um, ostensibly a secular party, but uh, a lot of their social and uh, economic policies I find a little bit outlandish and a, a little bit uh, alarming, to be perfectly honest. Now, I suppose for a, a non-political group uh, like yours, is uh, it, it's a little bit difficult to negotiate the political aspect of of actually, you know, supporting specific political parties. But I was just wondering how did how did the these so-called ambassadors of secularism. Um, totally ignore a party called the Secular Party with virtually the same policies as the National Secular Lobby and hitch their wagon to the Greens. Well, well, I'll just intervene first of all because there was one particular post which had um, a sort of a scorecard for the the uh, the government, the Labor Party and the Greens in terms of secular issues and Mm -hmm. the Greens got straight A's, uh, Labor probably a small fail Mm -hmm. and... Uh, the, the government a big fail, and you were not happy, Twelfth Man, because it was like, well, where are the Secular Party and the Pirate Party and exactly. the others who yeah. are also very secular? So yeah. that was your big gripe. Look, so, I, can I just add, yeah. the Greens are not uh, are not as purely secular as the Secular Party is anyway, because they support things like you know, Aboriginal superstition. You know, they're totally on board with you know encouraging ind- Indigenous Australians to promote their, their superstitious practices. Yes. So there you go, um, Peter, what's your answer to or How can you allay the concerns of the 12th man? <laughs> uh, yeah, so I suppose I, I totally agree that it would have been great if we could have um, if we could have covered more parties on there. That was purely uh, down to the fact that, uh, well, we have very limited manpower, essentially. Mm. Um, and in the end, we thought if we want to try and cover this to some degree of, of adequacy, uh, we're going to have to limit ourselves to, um, I suppose, what people see as the big three parties. Yeah. So that's that's what ended up happening. Um, and yeah, as, as far as the the issues go, um, I yeah I do kind of agree with what you're saying about you know the Greens being kind of good in some areas but not so good in other areas. Um, for the purposes of that of that scorecard, we did 
pick only a specific list of issues to, to kind of grade on. Mm. Um, obviously, there was nothing on there. Well, a little probably, but not a lot about, you know, things like big economic issues because mm. uh, they kind of, for the most part, fall outside of what we're interested in. Um, yeah. So so certainly if we, if we had included more varied issues, then, yeah, perhaps they wouldn't have scored as, as well as they did. Yeah, well, I mean, it would have been nice just to to have, a, I suppose, a wider list, you know, because there are people who actually do give their vote to the micro-parties, mm-hmm. you know, and um, I think it, it would have been nice to have a mention, especially considering the secular party has always supported the national secular lobby by republishing their announcements and their promotions wherever we were aware of it, and I'm on the mailing list, so... And I, I've been the main um, uh, page administrator for the Secular Party's Facebook page, so I've been okay. I've been very um, astutely, you know, reposting stuff that I've received from the National Secular Lobby and and also from the uh, National Secular Society in the UK, and they have some terrific mm. uh, material on their website, yeah. and I yeah. frequently post stuff from there. So I mean, and and you know we've. We've we've uh, actively campaigned for a whole range of issues that are at the heart of the national secular lobby's push. I think, and um, I, I was just extremely list- disappointed that we weren't we didn't even get a mention. And and then uh, you know Julian Burnside, of course, ran for the Greens, and mm. and I think Jane Caro. Uh, and look, they're both good people. Don't get me wrong, but you know Jane, I saw her name attached to some prom- promotions for the Greens parties as well. And I just thought, well, you know, what, what is going on? Here's, you have a party called the Secular Party which has actively campaigned for all the same issues and we're just not even worth a mention. It was um, disappointing to say the least. No, fair enough. We even have uh, a member of the secular party on on the committee too. So yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, 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 sorry. Um, um, uh, Colin. Yeah, Colin. Uh, oh, Colin. Colin, Colin, Colin Coleman. Oh, really? From, yes. from Sydney? Yeah. Oh, okay. Mm. Yeah, I wasn't aware of that. Mm. And look, as for Harris Sultan, you know, I mean, he's a, a fairly recent recruit to the secular party. So the fact that he didn't really know about you guys too much, I, I suppose that's excusable. I was certainly aware of them, of you guys, and I certainly have been trying to um, post material from your website uh, whenever it came up. So. Yeah, that's excellent, and, and, and no, that's fantastic. Yeah, um, and look, yeah. I, you know, I'm total, totally on board with you guys. I really hope you do succeed. I hope I don't sound too bitter. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I mean, we were um, – when we were – I mentioned at one point on social media, just kind of casually, that, yeah, we'd be putting a scorecard, a scorecard together for the election. Uh, and it actually turned out to be quite popular, as in – when the election was approaching and we hadn't put it out yet, we had people saying, where's the scorecard? Yeah. So mm. it's definitely something that people are interested in. Um, and, and now that we are aware of the level of interest, um, I think, well, hopefully, um, it's something that that kind of information is something we, we will hopefully be able to spend more time on and make it more comprehensive. Mm-hmm. Very good, Peter. Okay, we'll let you go. Thanks for your time. Keep in touch if anything happens and uh, I'll let you know if I get a call from Sunday Extra about yes. uh, <laughs> the Religious Discrimination Act. Okay, thanks, Peter, so, for, please, yeah, for thank coming you. on Thanks board. a lot, guys. Yeah. Keep, thanks very much, Peter. Keep up the good work, Peter. Bye. Thanks, Bye thanks, now. <laughs> thanks a lot.
Yes, listeners, all we have to do is get 999 other people to hand over 20 bucks a month and we will have achieved our goal of $20,000 a month. This is the thing, isn't it? It's manpower. It's time. It's You know, the secular party has exactly the same issue. Just people people are interested. You know, they log on to the Facebook page, they read the articles, they make comments, they they give us likes. But when it comes to the election, what do Mm. they do? Mm. I'm sorry, but, you know, the support... It doesn't materialise when we in in the form that we really need it. Yes. Sadly, yeah. Okay, I'm going to put in a little link here. Maybe there's a picture will probably appear on your podcast app if you're listening on an iOS device. But there's a thing called Metcalfe's Law, which is about how systems with connections work, and it basically was sort of. It's been illustrated the use of either fax machines. Fax machines was the one that's been illustrated with, and. If you've got two fax machines, then the total number of connections you can make is one. But if you've got five fax machines in a network or five computers, if you like, because a, a lot of kiddies listening to this podcast wouldn't even know what a fax machine is, would they, Tor? So you wouldn't listening to this podcast? <laughs> so no, I don't have, we don't have a fax machine at the office. They're so. a little bit – they're becoming obsolete. They're gone. They're gone. They're, they're completely gone. Let's say you've got five computers in a network. Yeah then the total number of connections that can be made is 10 between them. And if you've got 12 computers in a network, then the number of connections that can be made is 66. So as you add more users into the system, the number of connections sort of rises exponentially. So... A little picture illustrates what I'm talking about. And basically, at the moment, in the secular world, we've just got little connections of one-on-one happening all over the place and we really need to get a whole lot of us talking with each other. So, Absolutely, we do because, you know, it's no coincidence that the number of people that are in the, in the census said they had no religion. And if we could get everyone speaking with a similar voice, we would shut the church up very, very quickly. You know. I don't know if it's going to be that quick, but at I, least it'd I'm be not nice. So sure, it's going to be that quick. <laughs> but would, we would certainly. If, if we could get everyone speaking in a similar yeah. voice, we would be able to shut them down fairly quickly. I, th- I think it's less a case of shutting them down than of people just losing interest and just saying, "Yeah, you know, you you old pe- churchy people, yeah, go away, do your own thing, but don't count on." you know, recruiting lots of new members. Look, I, as you know, I work in education. I work with a lot of foreign students. And I, uh, whenever the subject comes up, I try to gauge their level of religiosity. And a lot of them are from Latin America. And I detect a, a lessening of religiosity among the young Latin Americans as well. It's right. happening. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, it's not just Australia and Europe and North America. Mm. I, mm. I think it's a global uh, mm. trend, to be honest. So here's the concern. If we were outside of the Middle East. Yes. Mm. Well, even in the Middle East, Scott, I think, I think we'd all be surprised if we could see that the true numbers of people that are, that are losing interest in uh, Islam and other traditional religions in the Middle East I think there are a lot more than we're aware of because it's, you know, it's, uh, it's risky for them to be open about it. That's very true. I'd forgotten about that. Yeah, they could there have, are a lot they of... They could end up being dead, couldn't they? A lot yeah. of uh, atheists in the Muslim world that are just uh, hidden to us. Mm. Mm. Here's the worry, dear listener. I reckon in the 
election campaign. Myself, I didn't feel the campaign was turning on religion. I thought it was more about economics and, and other issues. Absolutely. But, but yeah. post the election, the religious groups are coming out and saying, well, there we go, we delivered an election to mm-hmm. you because there was a religious backlash. And this talk is gaining traction and the Labor Party, dear listener, are spooked. And they're thinking, holy crap, we got pounded at the election because of religion and we need to now pander to religious interests. So to give you some feeling for this, Anthony Albanese uh, has said he needs to work constructively with Scott Morrison to pass religious freedom legislation. Christina Keneally, Labor's new deputy leader in the upper house, savaged Labor's campaign of being tone deaf to the concerns of religious people. We lost them on the more traditional touchstone culture and social issues, she said. Uh, She goes on, if you take the issue of religious freedom, I see a growing concern of people of faith that in this Twitter world, the instant response world we live in, that they are going to be ganged up upon. Uh, Chris Bowen, former Treasury spokesman, urged the Prime Minister to bring forward legislation on religious freedoms quickly so it could be considered by Labor, who has a strong tradition of people who are socially conservative but economically progressive. And we've got to make sure that that tradition continues to be represented. And there was another guy, Victorian MP, Anthony Byrne, a social conservative, said there was a perception that the Labor Party did not welcome people of faith and um, basically making all the same sort of noises. That all adds up to me, to a Labor opposition that's willing to... that's spooked and will probably give in on uh, some some potentially nasty elements. I think the Labor opposition has gone gone out and changed their undies, really. (laughs) They have because they have have begun to shit themselves. And if they really pull it apart, they would discover that the reason why they lost the election is that Bill Shorten was about as popular as a... Pork chop at a bar mitzvah. Mm. You know, <laughs> he was not very popular. Now, everyone's blaming franking credits, the whole thing on rental properties, but, and they're also blaming the religious yeah. thing. But none of that makes any sense, you know. Well, well I think the franking credits and I think Bill Sean's unpopularity and what other issues did you mention? I just don't think the religion, and I mean, I'm, I would be happy to concede if it was, but I just don't think the religious issue was such a. a no, a I don't think I don't think religion was a big issue. In it. I, think I think it was that, more about economics. Absolutely, it was all about economics because yeah, mm. that was all they were arguing about. Mm. That's right. I mean, everyone knew that Morrison was a clap happy, born again Christian. We all knew that. Mm. You know, God knows why he took the cameras with him into church, but he did. You know, that, you don't think that was just part of his presenting himself with a wholesome image, you know, because well, people still people still assume if you're religious, if you're overtly religious, you're a respectable person. They might not, might not agree with everything you say, but you're a respectable. In other words, they can trust you. You know what mm. I mean? It's part of this 
respectability image. Look, that from, he, he said you don't know why he did it, but from his point of view, it's a perfectly normal thing to do. Yeah, because he was out there trying to evangelise to the rest of us. Yeah, I mean, to go to church on a Sunday and do all that was completely normal, so he, he wouldn't have. And yet on that. other occasions he says, he says, well, my religion is my personal business and it's not part of uh, what I am as, as a Prime Minister. Yeah, that's if he thinks he's going to be grilled. Very, that's when he thinks he's going to be grilled on a tough very issue. Very convenient, isn't it? He, mm. he chooses and picks when it's going to be important and when it isn't. Yeah. So anyway, uh, watch this space, but I fear the Labor Party are going to go soft on well, this Well, it really does concern me that they are going to go soft on this because they were the ones who were saying before the election that we've got to remove the discrimination against staff members at these schools. Mm. Now they've gone very quiet on that and I believe that because Christina Keneally is a Catholic, she could end up arguing that staff should be still be able to be sacked by the schools. It's wrong. Mm. Do you guys get the Sunday Mail at all? No. Right. Sorry, <laughs> did he just ask us if we get the Sunday Mail? Yeah, he did. Yeah. <laughs> he's, you know, do you still get the paper delivered it, yet? <laughs> it, was, it was worth it, the Sunday, because the headline was, Jesus, Catholic schools are going gender neutral, with more of a story on page seven. Really? Yes. <laughs> and then uh, with a headline, Lord help us. This is interesting, dear listener. Catholic schoolgirls in Brisbane are being taught that God is gender neutral. What? With politically correct prayers that dump male descriptions of Lord or Father. A feminist philosophy to prayer has been embraced by some of Brisbane's top Catholic girls' colleges, which are now using inclusive language in religion. The Christian Bible describes God as a male, but some top schools, including All Hallows, Loretto College, St. Rita's, um, and Stuart Home, are stamping out traditional terms such as Lord, Father and Son. Stuart Home uses gender-neutral language, including the word God-self in place of himself. <laughs> as we believe, quote, as we believe God is neither male or female, Stuart Home tries to use gender-neutral terms in prayers so that our community deepens their understanding of who God is for them, how God reveals God-self, through creation, our relationships with others and the person of Jesus, a spokeswoman said. I'll just read a bit more because it gets better. Students, students at All Hallows make the sign of the cross in the name of the Creator, Jesus and the Holy Spirit, instead of the traditional Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Loretto College uh, has stripped the word Lord from its prayers as, it regarded, as it's regarded as a male term. Uh, prayers written specifically for use within our college do not refer to God as male or female, said the principal. Loretto, as a leading school for girls, has a commitment to using inclusive language. There are occasions where gendered language may be appropriate, including references to special religious and biblical figures. St Rita tries to use gender-neutral terms for God, but still uses traditional prayers such as Our Father, which it said was particularly appropriate for Father's Day. Of course. <coughs> While I, I cough, ask, you gentlemen can talk about... I was ask, what the hell would they do with the Lord's Prayer? Because that thing starts off as Our Father. <laughs> you know. Well, they can change it. I mean, if they're changing... To what? Who knows? A creator. Our creator. Well, uh, yeah. <laughs> Instead of... Uh, you know, Look, religion of- has always been a bit loony. 
And it's yeah, I know, but this, I mean, this is proving that they've gone completely loony. Well, we, sh- mm. we shouldn't be too surprised. I mean, over the centuries, you know, they if anything becomes unfashionable or inconvenient, they just change it. Mm. It's like it's like when was it a, a century or two ago when the Pope decided that uh, Jesus, Mary, Mother of Jesus, had physically ascended into heaven. That wasn't part of their theology until mm. I think what. 150, 200 years ago, something like that. Yeah. So they make it up as they go along and they're still doing and it. they got rid of limbo as well. Limbo? Yes. Like the limbo rock? No, limbo was a place where if you were a baby. Went to purgatory. Oh, purgatory. No, yeah. limbo is different to purgatory. Is it? Is it? Yeah, limbo in the Catholic tradition was for babies who were born, who, who, who weren't d- baptised. Who weren't baptised. When they died. But who died. They oh. couldn't go to hell because they hadn't committed any sin. Yeah. But they couldn't go to heaven because they hadn't been baptised. So they were in limbo and they had to wait until a judgment day and then they would be able to go up to heaven. But uh, they weren't deserving. That was, that was what I was told. It's absolute it? nonsense. It really like, is. But they just, they're showing how ridiculous they are now, again, yet yes. again, yeah. by just changing it because it's inconvenient. Yes. So I didn't read it but there was quotes there from Lyle Shelton saying, you know, oh. this is a... Uh, Political correctness gone mad. Well, he's but, right. But 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 but, he, but he's <laughs> for he's, a change. But he's, he's speaking right. as if the attack is coming from outside, <laughs> but it's actually from within. Like yeah. this is all generated yeah. from within yeah. the religious groups. So should we be enjoying secularists this? and atheists have had no input into this at all? It's all come from within the religion. Yeah. So yeah. So that was uh, that, and of course the editorial. Even the editorial went on about it. And really, the, the first paragraph of the editorial was. The latest eruption of political correctness, this time emanating from some of Queensland's Catholic girls' schools, is enough to make you fall to your knees and pray for strength. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Uh, At least they're entertaining us. So there's some value in it. So that was that. There was an article about uh, the Religious Discrimination Act that's coming. The Sunday Mail was littered with religious stuff and – uh, we will get on to some of the Falau stuff that was there as well. Well, actually, a little bit about Falau, just little tidbits to add to your knowledge about him. So you, we know he started off as a Mormon. Then he moved to join a Pentecostal church. Then he moved to Hillsong. And then they had a dispute with the charismatic leader, Brian Houston. So um, Falau's father started his own church and... It's called the uh, the Truth of Jesus Christ Church, mm. and that's where Falau is preaching at his father's church. I liken it to the free enterprise uh, economic system. It's the free enterprise religion system. You know, if you, if you don't like that particular brand or that particular company, you start your own. Yes. Yep. As it's always been. Yeah. In Christianity, anyway. Mm. And as we know, the whole Falau thing is going to come down to really employment law, contract law. And one of the interesting things is that apparently in those hearings, Falau made an admission that he knew that his media posts could offend people. And he also knew that it was likely to cost the ARU money because remember Falau made comments back in 2018 when he got his first rap over the knuckles? Yeah, vaguely. And at that time, apparently, there was a millionaire private donor called Paul Saltieri who was paying Falau somewhere around $250,000 a year at a little bonus top-up to his income. To do what? Just 
to be just somehow. To be a good footballer. And when he made those comments in 2018, that donor, um, he pulled that donation and said, I'm stopping. So Falau knew that because of the comments he made in 2018, he mm. lost $250,000. He knew if he made similar comments, he the Australian Rugby Union was going to lose sponsorship. So mm. uh, that all came out in the hearing. See, that makes me think that he was deliberately <coughs> trying to get sacked. Well, Maybe not deliberately sacked, but he was he was witnessing for his beliefs. He's for committed, sure. yeah. Mm. Now, in the um, interview with Peter, I think I mentioned that previously the religious groups actually campaigned against religious freedom laws. That yeah, that was really imposed. interesting. Yeah. yeah. So I've got a link here, dear listener. On four separate occasions, 1984, 1988, 2005 and 2009, different laws have been proposed, mostly in New South Wales, and there's all links and evidence to show that the religious groups fought vehemently against religious freedom laws at that time, and now they've changed their tune. And it, it seems to be because those particular laws we're going to treat all religions equally and we're going to protect freedom from religion as much as freedom of religion and the religious groups didn't like the sound of that but I think they think they're going to get a better deal on this occasion coming up. So, Do you think they're actually thinking that they're going to get a better deal, which they probably are, but do you think that's their main motivation or do you think the main motivation is that they can see the writings on the wall? I think they think they can get a better deal. Yeah. I think this is their chance. That's got Morrison there, and yeah, I understand that, mm. and I I tend to agree with you. But I'm just wondering mm. whether or not that is their main motivation, or whether mm. their motivation is they understand that the community is against them, yeah. and, and they genuinely think they're entitled to all these privileges. Oh, like I know they that. actually yeah. believe their case. So yeah, and they probably think that uh, Scott Morrison is a genuine gift from God. Uh, Don't you think they probably do? There's a miracle mm. win, right? I mean, it's part of their whole sort of belief system is that. That God rewards them because, yep. um, because, you know, that's God's will and all that sort of mm. baloney. Here's an interesting one that came from Thyrus, which is the organisation operating in New South Wales and less so in Victoria, given that they were successful in all of their ventures. I guess they're still working down there. Okay, people, volunteers, um, tradespeople, um, whatever, who, who come into a school in New South Wales are required to show the principal a working with children sort of accreditation to make sure that they've, you know, have been convicted of some sort of nasty child sexual offence or something else that makes them inappropriate. So it turns out that there's one group of people, one group who are not required to show the principal their accreditation that they're safe to work with children. And who, I guess. Who was, the, who was the one group who would think would would not be given that privilege but who was actually given that privilege? The special religious education people? Exactly. Mm. So, and, and after the uh, inquiry into institutional sexual abuse of children, correct. wouldn't you think they'd be the people that would absolutely need it? So priests. One would have thought so. Priests, clerics, pastors. Imams, rabbis, volunteer sort of teachers who are providing religious instruction, special religious education classes, as they're called in New South Wales, are not required to show 
that they're safe to work with children to the principal. They're, they're required to have it through their organisation, but the principal, um, they don't have to show it to him, him or her. Yes, it's incredible. That's uh, because really we because bizarre. we can trust their organisations mm. to have done the, the right thing. That's the policy. But were they not <coughs> looking at the outcome of the Royal Commission? You know, because that would have proven that you, you can't trust the bastards. Of all the people who should be checked. Exactly. You'd think you'd check them. It's incredible. So it's incredible. Sorry, Paul, I cut you off. No, no, no. I was just going to say it goes back to what I said before. People assume if you're associated with a church or, or a religious body, you're trustworthy. But, mm. of course, we know now they're certainly not. Mm. Um, we picked up a couple of new patrons, uh, one of whom was not, dear listener, we have a, a, a general language warning on this program, if you're if, on this podcast, <laughs> if, if you're new to the podcast. Especially if Trevor's, Trevor's talking about Jordan Peterson. Yeah, yes. especially <laughs> then. We occasionally drop the F word, just once, sometimes, not necessarily, but just occasionally. It's always used in the right spirit and not too excessive, I don't think. So anyway. Bear that in mind as I'm about to read this next section. I sent a uh, little note to Greg saying, thanks for signing on as a patron, and he said, Hi, Trevor. How could any listener not become a, a patron after listening to your well-reasoned, concise and convincing argument as to patronage? <laughs> from, mem <laughs> from memory, it was, quote, pay up or fuck off. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is some other things there about some music that we should uh, tune in on and uh, it says keep up the great work, in particular the interviews. Thanks, Greg. I chuckled at that one and you clearly got the message loud and clear, which is good. Uh, I'll do a quick run through of the patrons. Starting at the top, Sean, Janelle, Craig, John, Landon, Wayne, Oyama, Alison, Steve, Tony, Caitlin, Watley, Jimmy Spud, Kane, Bronwyn, Matt J, Robert, Rod, Pai, Maddockman, Dominic, Liam, Dave, Karen, Daniel, Harry, Gavin, Peter, Captain Doomsday, Aiden, Wheatwatcher, Nico, Andy, Murray, Melinda, Adam, now Greg, and also Professor Dr. Dentist, who's come on board as well. Good on you. Oh, really? Good on you, Professor. And also the non-patrons, Dean, Ken, was the beneficiary, Mark, and Mr. Anderson. Beer sponsors? Beer sponsors. Uh, tonight I'm drinking a Sapporo beer from Zach. Thank you very much, Zach. And our beer sponsors start out with Was, Wayno, Landon Hardbottom, Bronwyn, Dave, Adam, Landon Hardbottom again, Caitlin, Zach, and Captain Doomsday. Thank you very much to all our beer sponsors. Mm. So, dear listener, um, patronage is important because we have a hefty number of expenses and that list of names there sort of covers it comfortably but not there's not a whole lot left over because not, we subscribe to a lot of things. We're not so, making very much money. No. Actually. So there's a <laughs> website, there's a host of the Iron, Iron Fist Velvet Glove um, commemorative um, a boat cruise around the South Pacific. Yeah, that's, that'll, that'll be in the year <laughs> 2095 possibly. <laughs> so we subscribe to a lot of news uh, uh, magazines, etc., to provide you with this information and they don't come cheap. So thank you to the patrons for your support. Thank you very much. We do appreciate it. Mm. Uh, I thought we never mentioned the Mueller report with Trump. 
No, and it's one of those things that we probably should have mentioned a lot more. Than and you would have seen in the news he's currently visiting the UK and he had a, a very nice-looking dinner with the Queen and um, her, her mob. Yeah, but he didn't insult her, but he insulted the Lord Mayor of London. He did. And he also – Quite fulsomely. Absolutely. And then he said – he says, oh, Boris Johnson would be a great Prime Minister. I thought to myself, Jesus Christ, this man mm. has no clue, no. does he? And and there's a, a very um, eminent American academic who I think is based in Australia who's frequently on the ABC asked to give commentary about US politics. And, and he said uh, Trump has totally trashed what was a tradition of US presidents not uh, offering an opinion on British politics. In mm. other words, not interfering in their uh, government but, system or their well, well, that's, 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 that's the CIA's job. <laughs> well, you can say that, Trevor. <laughs> well, no, in- that's, that's, that's a tradition that, that is with all democracies. You don't comment on other countries' democracies. Well, you certainly don't trash their leaders. No, you don't, which is well, exactly not publicly. What, no, you don't publicly. Privately you do, but... You know, the way he carried on with Theresa May was absolutely disgraceful. Yeah. Uh, anyway, just back to the Mueller report. Mm. Uh, in case, dear listener, you haven't been keeping up with that and you're standing around a water cooler at some stage and they start talking about it and pretty much in six lines I think I can summarise what it was. So save you having to read it. But basically the findings were that the Russians interfered in the election, that... There was no conspiracy by Trump to work with the Russians um, and mainly because his underlings disobeyed Trump when he told them to work with the Russians. So he was saying, go on, go on, head over there and do that with them and these people just didn't do it. And that the sort of disobedience of his underlings actually saved Trump from a conspiracy charge. The second part of the report questions, was there obstruction of justice by Trump in trying to obstruct the Mueller investigation. And they give facts which are quite compelling to say that he in fact did, but they didn't come to that conclusion. What they did say, or what Mueller said, was that if Trump was innocent of obstruction, then Mueller would have said so. If he was guilty, Mueller couldn't indict the president because there's a rule that says you're not allowed to indict a sitting president. He could only lay out the facts for Congress and leave it up to Congress to impeach him. So um, Mueller was not allowed to indict a sitting president uh, because of a long-standing sort of um, theory. of It's more to do with the doctrine of the separation of powers, that the judiciary shouldn't be knocking off somebody from the executive. So... Leaves it up to Congress to impeach. And I guess the thing then is, well, will the, Repub- will, will the Democrats try and impeach Trump over this? And I, the, the risk is – well, Scott, go on. Okay. Nancy Pelosi has tread a very careful path on this. She's the head of the Democrats in the House of Representatives, the Congress. Mm. Now, she has been pushing back against those Democrats who are arguing for impeachment because she says, look, you'll get impeachment voted on in the in the Congress, but then it will fail once it gets to the Republican-dominated Senate. And she's dead right. She is right. And she's also said that you've got to be wary because if you do this, then that makes Trump a martyr and that energises his base. 
that makes him even harder for us to knock off in 2020. Now, one of the more delicious ironies, one of the more delicious uh, conspiracies I heard was that she doesn't want to impeach him. She wants him to fall over at the 2020 election. And then after that, then the cops can go in, they can arrest him, mm. <laughs> and he can actually be put in front of a. Then he can be indicted. He can be indicted because he's not a sitting president. So he can be indicted and charged and, and prosecuted. So that is a possibility. Mm. I hope it's true, but I don't know. Mm. But anyway, I think she's playing it very sensibly. Mm. She's just um, Trump. Trump would love them to bring on this sort of impeachment. Absolutely, thing because, because then he could then play the victim. And he's got control because he's got the numbers with Republicans in the Senate, so they'll never agree to impeach him unless, even if he walked down Fifth Avenue and shot, shot 10 someone. People, yeah, exactly. As he said, yeah. so he he'll be quite feeling quite secure that he won't actually be impeached, but then. He will love the fight and then he will say, oh, look, the impeachment vote failed. Um, I've been victimised. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that all pans out. Well, I think Nancy Pelosi remembers what happened last time they tried to impeach the president, you know, which is the last time they attempted to do that was with um, Bill Clinton Clinton and it failed. Mm. And then, you know, he then trounced the the Republicans in the midterms. Mm. I think Pelosi's right. Mm. Mm. Interesting sort of tactical decision to make. Mm. Absolutely. But, you know, I think she's absolutely right. She sort of just keep her powder dry. Mm. Dear listener, we get lots of feedback uh, from our patrons and other people who say, love what you guys are doing. Don't always agree with you, but it's thought-provoking and keep up the good work. And when they say don't always agree with you, what topic do you think that probably is that they don't agree with us on? Jordan Peterson. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's coming up. But, but, but what else? Well, um, Aboriginal issues. Aboriginal oh, issues. Right. Yeah. And we've got the state of origin coming up. Indeed. And, and I'm going to play a little bit of a clip to give people a bit of a background about what's going to happen with the state of origin and the singing of the national anthem. So have a listen to this. Maroon star Will Chambers will boycott the national anthem before Origin 1 because he claims it misrepresents Indigenous people. And Chambers won't be alone in standing in silence Bitter foes on Wednesday night will be drawn together in protest. It's an issue that divides Australia but unites maroon and blue. Rugby league leads the way on Indigenous issues and its Indigenous stars will use silence to fight for anthem change. If we all understood what had gone on and what's happened in the past in Australian history, well then maybe maybe it is time for change. But at the moment, if it's not change, well, I'm not going to acknowledge it. It doesn't represent us. You know, we aren't young and free. This is, you know, we were here first with longest living um, culture in the world. Origin combatants repeatedly making the point they're happy for teammates to sing proudly. It doesn't represent us, you know, so if boys choose not to do it, that's their own personal choice. I won't be singing it. Chambers has sung the anthem previously. As I've learned a little bit more about my people and my history, um, I've probably shied away from it a little bit. Not offending anyone that's, you know, of um, white Australian descent, I guess it's just, you know, my personal reasons and everyone has their own. We're all one, we're all Australians and um, we just want to get recognised. Not, not young fan, and free. The, oh, my goodness. The, the fanboys are waiting for you. If anybody in. is young and free <laughs> and privileged and really well paid, it's first grade rugby league players. I wish I had their um, lack of freedom. Their and youth and their freedom. Priv- privilege, yeah. God, I mean... Talk about, um, 
I know these these guys are so ignorant. I mean, I I don't want to stand up for to defend the national anthem. I don't particularly like it either. I I have to say, I think we could do a lot better. So I'm not standing up for the national anthem. But these guys really, they, they don't know what they're talking about. You know, they have a an extremely um, well, one sided okay. view of so history. When he says we're not young and free, he's talking about his people are his not people. free. Would be yeah, what really. he's saying. Mm. Okay. There we go. They're so, a lot freer than the uh, the Uyghurs in Xinjiang in northwestern China, that's for sure. Yeah. I mean, our government isn't trying to herd them into camps or, or you know, change their religious beliefs or anything like that. They're, they're pretty free. Look, you know, the, the history is complex. I've, I've read a little bit about our uh, early history of this country and uh, you guys would know I used to be a high school teacher. I used to actually go outside the the curriculum quite deliberately and and give my social education students extra information about the early settlement of Australia, including the abuse of the Indigenous people. You know, I totally am on board with our children getting a balanced view of our history, totally on board. But these these guys are not happy with that. What they want is it's it's a bit like religion, isn't it? They want a favourable position in Australian society. They don't want. I don't think they really want equality, do they? I mean, it's like your comment, Trevor, about the uh, Indigenous All Stars, you know, or the Indigenous uh, football matches that were all about being Indigenous versus non-Indigenous. This is hmm. divisive tribal politics, identity politics at its almost at its worst, isn't it? Scott. Any comments? I don't understand the objection to the national anthem. You know, if they really want it changed and that sort of thing, I think they've got to come up with a alternative first and then we can debate that, you know. Um, however, young and free thing, I think that's referring to our nation. It is young and free. Mm. Our nation has only been around for... 230 years or thereabouts. Uh, you see, they would yeah, say 60,000 years. I know, but they would years. say 60,000 years. No, but there no, was not hang a on. Nation. Sorry, there's a correction. So, so there, 120,000 The guy years. who wrote uh, Dark Emu, he yeah. was on the drum recently. He yeah. said 100, without blinking, he said 120,000 yeah. years and nobody, yeah. nobody challenged him on that. Yeah. I was so, qu- so, so when they say we're not young and free, they're saying, well, we're actually 60,000-year-old yeah, okay. civiliz- you know, civilization, well, and we're not free because we're incarcerated. They're talking about that. However, that 60,000 years was not a single nation. It was a collection of tribes. They weren't even tribes. They were, they, were, they were family-based clans. Okay. Yeah. I mean, this idea that they were First Nations is just ludicrous. They weren't nations. They were just, just assorted clan groups look, look scattered up. over the countryside. If they're I, think, I think about- they're still entitled to say we because that's who they're identifying with. Okay. Yeah, okay. So they're saying that they're not young and free because, you know, we've been here for 60,000 years and then we're not free because we're incarcerated. Mm. <laughs> they're not all incarcerated. They're not all incarcerated, no. When they say our, my people that I identify with are not young and not free. Yeah, but I think so you would still find correct. a minority of Indigenous people would be coming on the wrong side of the law. I don't know what the numbers are in total, but I would imagine it would still be less than half of them would have actually had run-ins with the law. Yeah, I have no idea of the statistics. but yeah. I don't know either. But here's my point. I would say, like, I don't like anthems either. I think 
nationalistic jingoism. It is just yeah. great. I never sing the national anthem when I'm at a football. So you're going silent at state of origin. I've never as well. sung them because I just think it feels some sort of warlike nationalism mm. sort of thing, really, and just. It's a terrible tune to begin with, isn't it? So it's pretty bland. So I don't care. I've always sung the national anthem. You know, we had this discussion with Colin Kaepernick, whatever his name is, in the oh, USA, and yeah. we might have had a different opinion back then. But mm. my opinion now would be: I really don't care whether they sing it or not. Like, whatever. And I really don't care if you want to identify with one half of your heritage mm. and not the other half. But my only problem is that if you are going to be encouraging division but you're pretending to be encouraging unity, then I just say, hang on a minute, that's just, you're not, you can't do both. You can't talk about we as opposed to you and then in the same breath say we're all one. Like if you want to set up a division and go your own way as a certain group, then and that's your choice, good luck to you. But I'm saying not a good choice. Uh, you're entitled to it, but maybe considering the overall sort of Australian society that you could be a part of rather than a small segment would be in your overall best interest. But anyway, that would be my feelings on it. So yeah. we'll see what happens. State of origin. Mm. Okay. Already mentioned Falau. Um so feedback, yes. The last few episodes we've had some great feedback on different things <laughs> and um, one of the things I did mention voter quali- the voter qualifications came up uh, yeah, at one point did. and mm. somebody a few weeks ago in a comment said, because we're talking about you need to be, well, there was a suggestion that perhaps you should pass some test in order to qualify to vote and uh, I saw this comment I thought it was pretty good where this guy, somebody said, how about you can vote on reality TV shows or elections, but not both? I thought that was. <laughs> hmm. That's a novel. That's view. a very good idea. Yeah, yeah that's, that's a good way of sorting things out. Hmm. Right, Jordan Peterson, Jordan fucking Peterson, <laughs> and enforced monogamy. Squeaky wheel was. Of all the things that were said last week, I can't believe that the most comments came up about Jordan Peterson. Peterson. He has his fanboys and girls. Yeah. Okay. He does. And, you know, I've still not watched anything that Jordan Peterson's on. I'm So go for it, Trevor. Okay. I can't comment because I haven't Here we watched go. anything. Okay. So last week. Uh, I quoted from this article which talked about Jordan Patriarchy Peterson, the smart person for dumb people. (laughs) And and in it, uh, in this article, he was quoted talking about an incident that happened in Toronto where this guy, I think, had a van and ran down some people, I think was how he killed them. And he was alleged to have been one of these incels and... um, Involuntary celibate. And in the interview with the, um, it might have been Salon, I'm not sure, which is notorious for doing hit pieces. So <clears throat> the, uh, the quote was from Peterson was, he was angry at, this is talking about the Toronto killer, he was angry at God because women were rejecting him, Mr. Peterson says of the Toronto killer. 
The cure for that is enforced monogamy. That's actually why monogamy emerges. And we went, enforced monogamy? Like, what are you talking about? Like, you've jumped off the cliff, Jordan Peterson. So Squeaky Wheel made various comments on the Facebook page and on the blog to say enforced monogamy is in fact a technical term in biological and anthropological circles. So enforced monogamy talks about cultures where monogamy is enforced through cultural and legal and um, hierarchical sort of norms where people are monogamistic by virtue of all those influences, not because they're naturally monogamous. So that's what enforced monogamy is, is cultures um, um, that's uh, monogamy that's enforced by sort of social pressures in summary, is enforced monogamy. So um, basically uh, Squeaky Wheel said to us, so it's pretty ironic people calling Peterson the dumb person's smart, the dumb person's smart person while not even bothering to check what the term enforced monogamy means or understanding its broader context within the fields of biology and anthropology. Ouch, Squeaky Wheel. <laughs> So we should have known that what Peterson was talking about was uh, enforced monogamy in the technical term, which meant uh, monogamy encouraged by social pressures. But in our defence, or my defence, because I was the one saying it, so it's, I'm talking about myself here. <clears throat> here's, here's my defence, squeaky wheel, and others. <laughs> Peterson's job is to communicate ideas. So he's used a term, enforced monogamy, and those words have got a pretty ordinary meaning. Like when you're looking at them, they haven't, and in the context of what, when he's saying it, uh, you don't look at those and they don't strike you as being a, a term of any special significance. They just seem to have an ordinary meaning, which seems to apply in the circumstances, particularly given his sort of reputation as a misogynist dickhead, right? So when you look at it, you go, well, that's just him jumping off the deep end again with his wacky ideas. So alarm bells didn't ring about enforced monogamy. And I consider myself a reasonably well-read and intelligent person. I've never heard the term enforced monogamy. Have you, 12th man? No, no, I haven't. Have you? I've never heard of it, no. So I would have thought that the onus would be on Peterson if he's going to use those words in a technical sense mm. and they're not common knowledge and it's in a situation where he could easily be misinterpreted mm. and accused of a dickhead idea which he's often accused of, what he really should have said was, you know, the solution for the problem with the Toronto guy is enforced monogamy. And by that, I mean enforced monogamy in the technical sense, which isn't, you know, mandatory matching up of people, but in fact letting a sort of social pressures work to encourage a society of monogamous. Mm. I think that's fair enough to say if you're a professional communicator and you're using words that can easily be taken for their straightforward, obvious meaning, and you're often 
bagged for misogynist views, you'd probably, you'd probably think to yourself, oh, there's a chance here people might think I'm suggesting something strange. Yes. So that's what I would say. Um, particularly because, and I'll give an example, would be that uh, enforced monogamy didn't, didn't ring alarm bells for me or either of you guys. Sometimes technical words would. Like if I said to you that um, uh, a contract was um, void ab initio, blah, 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 you would go, well, shit, that must be a technical term. I don't know what that is. No, I don't. I'll, I'll look it up, find out what the meaning is because you immediately know, okay, I don't know what that is. What, what does it mean? Mm. But if, I, you know, if you said to me, oh, how was your day in court today? And I said, oh, uh, it wasn't good and um, my witness turned hostile. You would go, you would think, oh, the witness you turned hostile. tried to punch him. Exactly. You would think if the witness turned hostile that the witness became aggressive mm-hmm. physically or verbally or something like that. All it means is that the witness actually changed their story and they could have been quite calm and matter-of-fact about it, but they just told a different story from what they'd previously said. They're a hostile witness. All sorts of things flow from that. Oh, so, yeah, of so if I was... Um, if I had a history of, um, of, let's say the witness was Indigenous and I had a history uh, of being a racist supremacist who belittled Indigenous people as having no self-control and I was telling the story and said, oh, yeah, that witness turned hostile, I'd be going, oh, hang on, not hostile in the sense that you might be thinking but hostile in the sense that he just changed his story. Like that's what you do as a communicator. Surely. So, um, so. So there's that. The second part of this is that when Peterson says the solution to the Toronto killer, uh, the cure for that is enforced monogamy. The guy grew up, was born in Canada, grew up in Canada. As far as I'm aware, Canada would be a society experiencing enforced monogamy because it has a culture of encouraging monogamy through social pressures. Mm. So... He's in a system of enforced monogamy. How can you say that the solution for the Toronto killer is enforced monogamy when that is the system that he's been raised up and living in? It doesn't make sense. He certainly should have clarified what he meant. But it just doesn't make sense. If you're saying that the cure for um, him was a system that he was actually living in, that makes no sense. Peterson must have been suggesting something else. Mm. I don't know. You'd think. Finally, still on Jordan fucking Peterson. Like the, <laughs> it turns out that this guy really, the Toronto killer, had some serious sort of um, uh, mental health issues. Like he's a guy who's clearly on the spectrum. He's, he had major mental health issues and to so much so that his former classmates couldn't believe that he managed to hire a van and could even drive it. Like and he'd been in special learning classes and things. Like he was a guy with serious difficulties mm. And to suggest that... Socially maladjusted. Yes. Mm. And to suggest that societal things would have helped him get a girlfriend, for goodness sake, you're way off the ball on that one in relation to this particular character. So I'm angry because I spent... Because it was said, look, if you go and watch Joe Rogan, he does an interview with Peterson and he sort of explains his thoughts on this enforced monogamy. So I sat through three hours of Peterson and Joe (laughs) Rogan and I never got to it. Did you have a drink in your hand? The whole show, the whole rock show with Peterson is he sets up um, uh, 
um, what do you call it, straw man ideas. He paints a picture of the most crazy left-wing feminist ideas that are out there and then just knocks them down and that's the whole thing. And mm. anyway, there's a link um, there where Walsh gave me subsequently where he does talk about the enforcement monogamy. He claims to be misquoted but he then doesn't offer what the quotes were that were missed. And the other thing is Peterson's all about um, – he hates quotas. The idea that there would be quotas with gender, that, okay, 51% of the population is male, 49% is female or whatever, therefore teachers and doctors and lawyers and everything else must match up to that proportion. He finds preposterous. Yet when he talks about enforced monogamy, he's really talking about an equality of outcomes that he's trying to enforce rather than an equality of opportunities. And Joe Rogan actually takes him up pretty well on that and says, you're really, in this case, being quite conflicted with your normal philosophy. And he has to admit that he is. He says it's because it's for the benefit of the children. So anyway, good on you, Joe Rogan, for pulling him up on that. And that's all I ever want to say on Jordan fucking Peterson again. The guy, <laughs> God, he annoys me. So there we go. Sorry, squeaky wheel. We can't agree on that one. So, right. Uh, any thoughts, gentlemen, on capitalism and the deaths by capitalism in, from last week? I really enjoyed that. It was good, good fun. Did, did you? I received a text message from Landon Hardbottom, actually. Mm. Let me guess, defending capitalism? He was defending capitalism, yeah. yes. Landon. He was defending capitalism, but he did raise a very good point. He said, how many people has capitalism killed in the same length of time as communism? Not far to count deaths because capitalism before communism arose in the early 1900s. Now, if we take Trevor got to approximately the same number of body count as what the communists were. I don't think I did, but anyway. Well, you did. You got to something similar, didn't okay. you? I don't know. Like, yeah. I, st- I stopped. Had, ca- I you st- had 30 million in India. Okay, yeah. I, and you 30 had million in China. Thir- I had 10 well, million with AIDS. Yeah. I had a million in. Anyway, you I ended didn't up- get on to Bengal or other places, but get, keep going. Sorry. Yeah. But the point is, Marxist Bolshevism has been around since 1919, basically ended in 1989. So for 70 years, that was the time that it took to get to that body count under Marxist Bolshevism. The same body count took hundreds of years to get to under capitalism. So I do think the speed at which the bodies were counted does, Mm. it is a very valid point that Landon has brought up. Can you be a little bit more charitable, Scott, and and say the communists had a lot of catching up to do? So they they were in a hurry. (laughs) Potentially, yes. Look, in answer to that, I'd say I, I, I stopped I didn't keep going on and on. Yeah, but like, if I didn't you wanted to go back far enough, you'd probably but, blame but, the Roman Empire but, but, for its all massacres. But, but, you know, like I didn't even start with Latin America. So, so 
I don't. Yeah, but you're blaming that. you're blaming the Americans for that. You're blaming capitalism for that. I don't believe that was capitalism fault. I believe that was a fault of a yeah. failed American. Yeah, but you said that about policy. the others, and you came round as well. No, like I if I told I the full still story, didn't come round on the AIDS epidemic. I still don't believe that was capitalism's fault. Speaking of which, a message from Bromlin, who said, "For what it's worth, I found your arguments on death by capitalism to be quite convincing." Absolutely. <laughs> now in, I have in, read what Bromlin. In fact, wrote. Yes. the one I found the most compelling was the one the Velvet Glove. I've poo-pooed the most, <laughs> which was African death from AIDS caused by the machinations of the World Trade Organization, mm. an organization which specifically exists to represent the interests of capitalists. Thank you, Bronwyn. And I read Bronwyn. Uh, I think that, there was another factor was in, Bronwyn, in that, was and Bronwyn, that was the Catholic Church who prohibited the, the, the use, uh, of, condoms, use exactly. of condoms. Now, did Bronwyn, was Bronwyn the one that had that article that was that she attached saying that ca- uh, capitalism was responsible for 20 million deaths per annum or not? No, uh, I don't think there was. But okay. It, uh, I still haven't read that article yet, uh, whoever the person was that did, uh, did uh, put that on there, but I will read that and get mm. back to you next week. Mm. Anyway, it was an interesting discussion. It was a very interesting discussion, but I do think that Landon raises a very good point there. Nick, Landon, I'm not taking any of your messages via Scott anymore. <laughs> Send us a voice message <laughs> if you want to, you know, or are you too scared? Mm. <laughs> Landon is not scared of anyone. <laughs> but look, you know, we none of, none of us have forgotten today is the anniversary of the massacre in uh, Beijing. Mm. The no, Square. 30 years ago. And look, that. you know, I, I would just make the point that, you know, let's, let's not get too hung up on body counts. I mean... The, the capitalist system, at least it operates in a um, political climate of uh, a little bit more flexibility than does the, uh, the communist system. At, at least the Americans are helping to install liberal democracies around the world. Is that what? Yeah, is, I know. And you've got this argument saying that is, 73%, 73% of de- dictatorships around well, the world are being propped up by the United you're stealing States. stealing the thunder. Yeah. <laughs> Because you did say. No, I didn't say that. Paul Paul said said words to that effect that America is helping to install liberal democracies around the world. Well, they. And and can I give. They're trying in a sense. I mean, certainly in Japan, they they did succeed in installing a stable liberal democracy. South Korea, yeah. Message message from listener Rod, who says, heard your comments. However, the US has either installed or currently supports nearly three quarters of the world's dictatorships. And he gives a link to an article where this guy has looked at uh, statistics from Freedom House, which has rated political rights around the world, yeah. and concludes there are 49 nations in the world okay. that can be fairly categorised as dictatorships. Yeah. And as of 2015, the US government was providing military assistance to 36 of them. Yeah. So that, in fact, the US was currently supporting... 73% of the world's dictatorships. Yeah, look, their, their record is very patchy. Their foreign policy record is patchy, to say the least. But look, what I would say to that is, you know, we wouldn't be having this conversation if we were living under the Chinese uh, communist regime. We would not be <laughs> even not talking be about to ha- We would not be allowed to have a, a podcast. Okay. So, yeah, we are free to criticise Julie, the Americans. Julian Assange is facing 115 years in prison thanks to the US, you know, he's political one individual. Ah, he's yeah. one individual. He's one individual. He's one individual. But also, but, but I also, think the, I also every think political journalist in America who relies on leaks from whistleblowers is facing the same threat now. Mm. So, 
you know, it's a very serious matter what's happening it's to Julian Assange. It's a serious matter. It's a very every, serious every matter. Every journalist think- in America who receives information from a whistleblower is facing the same yes. threat. And, in fact, that's why they've charged him. And our, that, our, 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 press, our press is still talking about it. Go to China and, <coughs> and just try and find any of their media organisations yeah. talking about Tiananmen. And as I say to you. None of them are. When, when I provide the contrary opinion, it's not because I'm saying that the others, you know, the Chinese are wonder boys and, no. you know. Thank goodness. He hasn't and, gone that far yet. But I'm just no, saying, I'm just saying <laughs> stop saying that Americans are great because they're not. It, there's a, the, the other it's, side of the story is just as bad in many cases. That's the point I'm always trying to make. I don't think they're just as bad. I, I just can't accept that they're just as bad. I don't think they're just as bad. They have certainly made some very strategic blunders. They sure have. The invasion of and Iraq. We all know that. The invasion of Iraq was a strategic blunder without yeah. equal. The engagement in Latin America and was the, a strategic And the blunder. strength of our system is we know about it and we're free to talk about it and exactly. publish about it. Go to China, see how free they are to publish criticism of their government. Well, see, we don't know about these things quite often like, and we're misled about things. Like, but most people think that the Marshall Plan was a magnificent act of altruism by the Americans. I still when, think it was. Well, can I play you a little bit of something? So we've got another oh, grab yes. here. We've got plenty. Of, are you guys in a hurry to go anywhere? No. Okay. All right. Here we go. We'll play a little bit of this. Hey, Trevor and the boys, just been listening to 204, the uh, discussion around uh, America installing liberal democracies and the Marshall Plan. Wow, uh, where to start? Well, um, got to understand the economics of uh, the United States in the uh, middle of the 20th century. Well, from the late 19th to the middle of the 20th century, the United States' economy was actually screwed. They were having recession after recession, then the Great Depression. And it wasn't until World War II and the Keynesian, the military Keynesianism that FDR used to fund the war, which was a transfer of wealth from the public treasury, contributed by individual taxpayers mostly, to the military buildup of the United States, that its economy got out of dire straits. But If you go and read the economists of the time in the mid-40s, they were well aware that the United States' economy would collapse again after World War II if it didn't have lots of foreign markets to export its goods and services to. Hence why it was in their selfish best interests to have a pro-capitalist marketplace in Western Europe Uh, after World War II for them to sell their goods and services from. Now, in terms of the Marshall Plan being altruism, that's, uh, uh, you know, the very fact that you can think that is, uh, you know, uh, the result of 70 years of American propaganda. What the Marshall Plan was, was one of the greatest transfers of wealth ever in history up until that time in a liberal democracy from the public treasury into the hands of private corporations. Of that 13 or $14 billion that the 12th man mentioned that was invested in the Marshall Plan, do you know how much of it actually left the shores of the United States? Practically zero. Because one of the conditions of the Marshall Plan, in order for countries to be able to receive the Marshall Plan, that money had to be spent on American goods and services. 
So it wasn't actually a transfer of wealth from the United States to Europe. It was a transfer of wealth from the public treasury, again, contributed by American taxpayers, straight into the hands of American corporations. Basically, the European nations are given a line of credit to spend on American corporations, which was uh, fabulous for the American businesses because they really didn't need to compete very hard for that business. They basically just got a, a huge windfall. And uh, the American taxpayers, did they benefit out of that? Uh, probably in, you know, in terms of the economy, the U.S. economy stayed healthy and there was employment and they had the boom time in the 50s. But uh, it wasn't an act of altruism. It was absolutely, as Trevor said, an act of enlightened self-interest. Oh, absolutely, as Trevor said. Thanks, Cam Riley. <laughs> uh, for those listeners who don't recognise the voice, that's Cam Riley who's got a couple, oh, all sorts of podcasts. He has the Cold War podcast. He's got the Bullshit Filter. He's got a number of history podcasts that he does. Look up the podcast network and check them out and tell him that Trevor sent you. <laughs> um, you're shaking your head, tough man. You're not. You're not well, accepting uh, this uh, at Cam, all. Cam, Cam's, Cam's explanation sounds like the the Germans after the war. The Japanese got no benefit from this transfer of money from the American taxpayers to the American capitalists. They did get a benefit. They got the goods that they needed to rebuild their countries and rebuild their economies. Uh-huh. So and I'm, I'm sorry. I tend to agree with you too, Paul. I don't think it was. I don't think it's, it was altruism as you were suggesting. But I don't think it was. What did you call it, Trevor? Enlightened yeah. self-interest. Well, I think that's what Cam called it. But yeah. anyway, I think it paints that conversation, plus what we said the other day, paints a different picture mm. to what people would normally perhaps yeah, have. Look, the it it doesn't have to be a direct transfer of money, does it? I mean, Australians, Australia's foreign aid uh, system works in a similar way, doesn't it, I believe? I don't know. That, uh, you know, they give... Uh, quite, quite often foreign aid does. ...grants of credit... Is- and a lot of it is uh, spent, I think, in purchasing goods and services from Australian companies. I couldn't tell you. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Don't I believe know. it is. Uh, but the- they still get the benefit. You know, mm. these foreign countries still get the benefit mm-hmm. of that. Yeah. But I guess the point is, though, that, that the it's a win-win. Yeah, it's, I get a little bit tired of, you know, not, America, not- the state, you know, Portrayed as Satan in the world, it's it's still a lot, lot better than having, you know, one-party dictatorships run the world. You've, you've mentioned Satan, so I have to go back to Israel Folau. This, this guy, uh, still back in the Sunday Mail, uh, I'll quote him here. This life that we live in is pretty hard, Folau continued. The god of this world, Satan, has deceived many. Oh, God. Israel Folau is here saying, this life that we live in is pretty hard. Yeah. It must be tough for you, Israel. eh? He's lost a $250,000 a year sponsorship, and that's just a drop in the ocean. God, since he was 18, he's he's, been on a pretty good wicket, hasn't he? He's had amazing, you know, no doubt works very hard and trained, etc. But let's face it, you need a lot of God-given skill God or perhaps given just lucky DNA, yeah. which it, take your choice. Other things in this quote was, uh, at another sermon, as his future hung in the balance, Falau told his church that offers to continue playing by taking his post down were the work of the devil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then further on, he's quoted as saying, quote, 
The way Satan works is he offers you the stuff you could look good to the eye and makes you feel comfortable. Mm. If you go down that path, yeah. all the worries and troubles will go away. He's got a Satan devil fixation. Oh, he does, yeah. bugger. He's lucky he's, he's, he's physically gifted because he's, he's certainly not, never going to be a rocket scientist. Yeah, well, we'll see. <laughs> Finally, should we just, we, seeing we're, we're doing a real review of our previous uh, stuff, quickly just on Adani. Remember, yeah, remember that how, was really interesting. Because yeah, yeah. our conundrum was, if it all adds up that Adani can't make money, the cost of extracting the coal is more than you can sell it for. Why would Adani do it? Scott, have you got any strong thoughts on this? I still, no, I haven't read enough on it. I mean, Joe had a very good point where he said that Adani himself owns the lease at Abbott Point, that he was getting paid by the metric tonne that was moved through the port. I don't know because you're still talking about losing 22 bucks a tonne for moving stuff through a port and that sort of stuff. I'm not sure that they get 22 bucks a tonne to shift the coal through the port. Um, so Maybe he's got some good contracts in India to sell to. Well, he's apparently selling. Sell he's selling. He's selling the coal power. to. He's selling the coal to his to his coal fired power stations. Yeah. So he's selling the power to the Indian government. Isn't yeah. Well, he's selling the power to the Indian people. Yeah. And the question still was. Why wouldn't he just buy cheaper coal from somebody else exactly. rather than get expensive coal from his own? And the answer is, according to the Michael West blog, that he's got form where he's been able to say to the Indian government, uh, the cost of coal has gone up and I need to put the price up on my contract with you. Mm. And while different authorities have said, well, too bad, you signed up to this, the government's caved and given him uh, Advantages. So he did that in a situation where his Indian company was buying coal from one of his other companies in Indonesia. So he simply said, well, this coal's more expensive and I need to bump my price up and, and they caved in. So he's probably banking on being able to do something similar. Plus, he's received a number of uh, benefits which will possibly make that cost of the coal less than what was calculated in that other article. So it seems like he will have access to um, free water and uh, he gets a diesel fuel subsidy. And it looks like, well, a quote from the Michael West blog here, the government has done a great job updating Queensland's mine rehabilitation legislation over the last two years, but it did sneak in a final exemption just for Adani such that they are entitled to leave a huge final toxic void in perpetuity. So, so Adani, you know, surprised. cross off the cleanup costs that would normally be part of your cost of extracting the coal. Mm. And there's also likely to be a seven-year royalty holiday, provided he can stomp up, stomp up some sort of a deposit. So there's a whole bunch of different subsidies and deals and things which will massage the figures and at the end of the day, he'll be able to say to the Indian government over there, well, it's cost me X amount, I need to put this margin on it. And, and they have in the past said, okay. So that's an explanation. There's full links there. There's the, cap there's the capital the system for you. Yeah. Didn't <laughs> the Queensland government announce that they were going to give a royalties holiday to mining companies if they voluntarily donated money to 
community causes? I think uh, that that was a royalties freeze, wasn't it? That was just a small fry. They were talking just millions. They weren't talking billions. It was a small fry. Throw some money in this direction and we won't take money off you in this other direction. It was, yeah. Well, there we go. That was all of the rehashing of that. Um, Scott or Paul, did you want to add anything to what's turned out to be another long episode? The ABC. Can we bash the ABC? Sure, go ahead. Yeah, I was watching a, um, an interview um, with a uh, representative of the Indigenous community in Victoria about the treaty negotiations with the Victorian government. And the interviewer who um, was a, an attractive young woman, reporter from the ABC, uh, throughout the interview she stood there smiling and nodding her head everything that was said in the interview. Now, as far as I'm concerned, the ABC is supposed to be gathering news and information and reporting it uh, without fear or favour. But it seemed to me it was like a promotion more than an interview. Mm. You know what I mean? And then when she was, she was interviewed this morning on the ABC breakfast TV program, uh, the the hosts of the program were in full in unison with this woman. They were saying, "Oh yeah, you know," virtually saying, "Won't won't it be a wonderful thing when we make progress with the treaty negotiations?" And I mean, is that their job? I I have taken issue in the past with um, Lee Sales uh, in her seven thirty report. Um, basically, at the end of a a, a, you know, a, a, a sad story about someone doing it tough in Australian society and Lee Sales ending with a comment like, oh, isn't it awful, you know? I mean, telling the viewers how they should be responding emotionally to news pieces, I don't think that's their job. They should be reporting, not telling us how to react or how we should be feeling. Anyway, that's my five cents worth. <laughs> the 12th Men fanboys are just... Standing up and cheering, what do you, perhaps. What do you guys think? <laughs> <laughs> what do you guys stop. think? I think you should stop watching the ABC because it's going to give you some sort of help. Oh, look, every yeah. time I turn over to the SBS, I just get angry. Uh, look, I know when I know when you're watching the ABC because a series of text messages come through <laughs> my phone saying, I'm just watching the drum now. Can you believe it? They're saying this, this, and this, and this. And then I know, and then I know. It just, it and just and do, you ever, do you ever turn it on and watch? I mean, the other day, you guys... Uh, wanted to borrow my copy of Dark Emu, and yeah. the author was on the drum the other day. Right, and yes. it was it was kind of interesting. Yeah, you know, not in not for the right reasons, mm. but it was interesting. Mm. Yeah. Right, hey, when's Landon Hardbottom coming to town? Uh, he flies in on the fifteenth of June. Okay, so what date are we getting together? Because, dear listener, this is important. If you live in Brisbane, Sunday the twenty third, wasn't it? Uh, keep. Uh, let's just find that date. Sunday the 23rd of June. Keep it free, dear listener. If you're in Brisbane, we will be heading to some sort of uh, brewery and we'll be meeting up with Landon Hardbottom and uh, anyone else from Brisbane who wants to meet with us. So more details to come, but... Uh, we will yeah, let you know. Yeah, that'll be good. One not to be missed. Mm. <laughs> right. Okay, dear listener, thanks for tuning in. See you. Or no, I won't see you. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks very much for tuning in. Bye now. Or as they say on the ABC, thanks for your company. (laughs) (laughs) Good night, Paul. (laughs) See you guys. 
Wasn't that sad? (laughs) (laughs) Doesn't it get get up your nose? Uh, No. Yeah. Iron fifth in a rubber glove. Real shit. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, First up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think is a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to I think $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, Is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just, it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners And that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.